Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Coscoe. And today, we have someone who's closed massive million-dollar deals at Oracle, Box, Carta, Product Board. He's the one and only Darcy Doyle. Mark, why should people listen? The main thing that Darcy talks about that is extremely relevant right now is multi-threading. And I think we did a really cool thing where we kind of flipped the script and he told us what he did as a sales leader, but then we asked him what he did as a buyer as on the executive team. And I think that there's some interesting information in there that kind of gives you that sneak peek of like, why are we doing some of this multi-threading stuff and how does somebody perceive it when it's done? That's right, folks. And a three, two, one, let's roll. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox if I don't get a reply in two days. That means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two-day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time every time, you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. All right, Darcy, welcome to the show. We start every show with your top three actionable leadership takeaways. Let's get your three. Hey, thanks, Armand. Thanks for having me. The first one is get beyond just doing demos. Really understand your customer and the business problems from their point of view, right? This is going to help you elevate your conversations beyond just talking to the low-level stakeholder on their side and get you to the exec level. If you're not talking about their business at the exec level, they don't care. They don't care about your bells and whistles. They don't care about your functionality. They want to know how to close the books at the end of a quarter, right? If they're in finance, they want to know what to do for their business, not just what your technology does. 
That's critical. And that's the first one. Great. What's number two? Armand, I would say using regular cadence team deal reviews, right? And focusing on the team strategy and approach to your most critical pursuits is a critical component for a manager to be successful in B2B SaaS, especially when it comes to like selling in mid-market and enterprise. So make these deal reviews positive. Do them on a regular basis. It's a time for the team to sit down and go, hey, where are the red flags? What are we missing as a group? It's group think. The three of us together talking about a deal are much smarter than one of us working alone. We all have experience. If we take that experience and pool it, we're going to come to a better conclusion on what we need to do to be successful in our pursuit by using the team together, right? Insert the whole team. Insist on them being there. Whether you have an executive plugged in, an SE, someone who's a consulting partner, the folks that are involved in your deal, you want them to be a voice in this opportunity so that you know you're scaling and you're getting to hundreds of deals and the company's becoming bigger. You need to trust your team and your managers under you to be able to do this on their own. And that's an important piece too. All right, round us up. What's number three? Number three is one thing that I've learned the hard way and I've learned when it's been done perfectly, right? Multi-threading in sales, it's a team sport, right? The more folks that you use to get to the different levels within your prospect, the more success you'll have. Exec sponsorship is a real thing. We all know companies, especially in today's world, are grasping every dollar that they have twice before they let it go. They're not gonna sign deals until they know it's gonna help their business, right? So using executives to bridge to their executives is critical. I have always loved the benign reach out from my CEO to whoever it is, right? That's their top level exec that's plugged into an opportunity. Just asking, is there anything you need from me and my team as we work together on this opportunity? That helps us and sends a certain message back to us as to whether or not their C-level is even aware that their people are you know, poking around in, in our software. All right, Darcy. I think you and I have very similar thoughts around deal reviews and the power of them. Before we get into that, I want you to talk about the pitfalls of the deal review. I don't know about you, but when I send out an email for a deal review or when I'm going through a process, I have my, this is what we will not do in this call. Like, Do you have your not do's? That's a great question, Mark. And one of the things that happens quite often is especially when you think about like doing a weekly forecast call versus doing a deal review. These things are different and you must make sure that you stay focused on the deal and the team and their execution around the strategies and their approach to the opportunity during a deal review, right? I think it's really important that you stay positive so that people don't clam up. You want folks active on those calls. You don't want someone who's not the AE right? Not to want to speak up if they think that something's going a different direction or the wrong way. And I think that that's a really critical piece of it in order to make sure that the, the process is positive and that it's, it's productive as opposed to some negative thing where you're just, you're out there trying to beat somebody up because they don't have a deal that's forecastable yet. Right. So Darcy, you got your exec, you got your VP, you got your manager, you got your rep, you got your sales engineer, you got some other subject matter expert that's in there. You got all these people. What I found is these deal reviews turn into story time. And the rep is just telling the story of the deal, celebrating the good stuff, bitching about the bad stuff. But story time isn't productive. Like bringing everybody up to speed in half an hour and not really getting to strategy is tough. And you can't really get to strategy till everybody's up to speed. Like how are you bringing people to that meeting ready to make decisions and strategize versus story time? 
Well, I've used different templates at different times, Mark. And I suggest that, you know, to most people that you try to simplify and use a template in order to keep the conversation limited to the actual things you want answered. And as much as you can do to be positive around these things, you can stop people. You can cut them off. Don't answer a question I didn't ask is a really important thing to learn as a sales manager, right? To keep things productive. Because it's like, hey, we're getting off target here. Let's make sure that we stick to the, the guide rails so that we can make this as productive as possible. When we were doing as many deal reviews as we were, like in some of my former jobs at Oracle and at Box, it was really critical that you kept these things limited to 20 minutes and that you really followed the guardrails and the, and the timeline, right? And that was through making sure that we were using the template effectively, that the team had prepared that template and had passed it around. You keep talking about positivity, Darcy, and like keeping it positive so people feel safe. How do you get there? Like, how do you make people feel safe? Because if they're holding back information, there's no way the group can do a good job together. So how are you keeping it positive? It's an intangible, but it's also really critical that you make people feel that way. And you have to tell them and you have to bring them into the conversation, right? If the three of us are in a deal review and Armand hasn't spoken up, but I've seen his eyebrows go, I'm going to ask him. <laughs> Armand, I just saw that you might have, you know, shaken your head there. What, what did that mean? Or did you, do you feel like that part of the strategy isn't working? These are critical components to making sure that the whole team feels empowered. Because as we know, everyone's going to have a different point of view looking at a deal from a different angle because of their involvement and how they're involved. And I think that this is a really critical time. We've all had managers in our past who will just beat us down. That's going to make people go back into their shells. And so I'll often call out people that won't talk about the, some of their beliefs openly on a line with four or five people, but I will ask them to kind of contribute based on some part of the deal that I know that they might know a different perspective on. Darcy, I want to go back to this concept of having a template or having a list of questions. And for me, what that looked like when I instituted this is I called it at Tuesday top 10 deals. And so it was always the top 10 deals on the sales team. And we would have stage by stage, what's the exit criteria of what green looks like in each stage, and just a one sentence summary on how you achieved said exit criteria. So you could get through a whole deal in 45 seconds if you were being really, really tight with your words and your time. Could you give the audience a sense of, what goes into your deal review template? What are the questions that they need to answer so that everyone in the room is smart enough on the deal and they can start asking questions? I think it's a lot of it is reflected in sort of the three themes that we started this call with. Because you, you absolutely have to understand that they have a business problem that can be addressed by your solution. Why are they talking to us? Why are they taking our calls? Do we have multiple contact points that are telling us that we're engaged in an opportunity that we can win? And then there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that is just the details around an opportunity, which is more like, what's the close date? When are we focused on? Do they agree that that's the close date? When are we going to go to legal terms and contracts? When are we going to do those things in order to make sure? And those things are facts. And hopefully they are shared as facts. Are they red flags? Because they might not be agreed to facts between the two parties. Those are the things that are critical too. So depending on, on the size, the kind of company you're selling for and you're selling to, it may change slightly, the template. But those are really important pieces. Let's say that I give you that explanation of, hey, here's the problem we're looking to solve. This deal is supposed to close at the end of the quarter, right? Here's the problem that they agreed that they had. And then you find out that the highest level person is a director of sales in this case, or a director level person in the opportunity. So you're like, oh, it sounded so good until I heard that the highest ranking person, their title starts with a D 
and the D is not Darcy Doyle. What do you do when you hear that from your reps? What are the types of questions that you're asking or that you're trying to get the room to ask with, again, it not feeling like an interrogation on that person? It'd be fun to role play with you, Armand, because I know how snappy you are. But I mean, the first thing I'd say is, do you think that that's a risk for us? Mm. Do you think that's a risk for us, Mark? Do you think that's a risk for us that the highest person that has access to this is a director? No, it's definitely closing Darcy. This guy can make all the decisions. He has budget. Yeah, and you and I both know, and anyone who's watching this who's a manager knows that kind of rep. Don't call any higher. We don't want to call any higher. We might piss somebody off. <laughs> that's a real opportunity for us to go say, look, that's the most important time to call high. Mm -hmm. I had a deal that went on for like three quarters last year because the manager was empowering the, the rep to not call higher. And it was obvious Right. And until we got actual the CPO on the phone, we didn't get anywhere because the CPO was ignoring their own team. Right. And this is such a critical piece. So if you are at the director level, use that and use your experience as a manager to say, look, I've seen a lot of deals burn at the stake here. Let's use multi-threading to get to the right place. Again, can we use something as benign as a note from our CPO to their CPO? They have not met yet. Let's just get them introduced. At least then the CPO is going to know, hey, they're talking to X vendor, right? And that somebody who's at a director level is looking at this thing, but they're not aware of it yet. I think multi-threading right now is maybe more critical than ever. So let's say that you are stuck at director and you're going to coach your rep how to go up to VP or SVP or C-level. And they're worried about going around this person and pissing them off. How do you, how are you getting people around that? So I think it's important to train the team on it first before you, you know, throw them under the proverbial bus. Because if they don't understand, they haven't been coached on this previously, then use this as a coaching opportunity to teach them. We know that it's really critical that you have an exec buy-in, especially when it comes to a smaller company where they have no, they have no budget at their disposal until they get to the C-level. Use an example. I worked for Aaron Levy for a long time at Box, and I would have Aaron Levy send notes all the time to the CIO that we were selling to. And Aaron, in his, in his goofy, personable way, would send a note to CIOs that wouldn't necessarily care or respond. But their CIO would now know that their team is engaged with and looking at Box to make a purchase and an, an agreement, right? And that was really critical for us in a lot of those big enterprise pursuits. An example like that helps someone make the leap of you're not going around that director level that you're at. You're actually using another executive to bridge to one of their executives to help us make sure that we're investing in a cycle that makes sense. So Darcy, you've mentioned this concept of sales as a team sport a couple of times. And I, I want to pivot over to that because my guess is you identify a lot of opportunities for you to jump in on deals or to leverage your CEO on deals in these deal reviews. I see a lot of times people will bring in power way too late on a deal, they'll bring in Darcy to help negotiate at the very end of the deal. But oftentimes, the most impactful way to bring in an executive is earlier on in a deal. And so when do you typically instruct your reps to first bring in people on their team to help with a deal? Is it after a hot discovery call? Is it when they're starting to multi-thread? Is it when the deal's getting stuck? How do I know as a rep on your team when I should be pinging you or Aaron Levy in this case? When you go to the process of a team deal review, you come up with a mutual action plan that you would want to present to the customer. And that's like an agreed to framework 
you want to do a demo for five different teams within your company as a prospect. I want to make sure that we're investing wisely and we're not doing five different demos for something that's not worthwhile. Let's do some bridging of executives to make sure that we get people involved. And a lot of times, especially when customers are larger and they're taking a risk on a smaller solution, a smaller company, they're going to want that too. They're going to want access to the people that they know have helped build the solution that they're acquiring or that they're looking at. I want to flip the script for a second though, Darcy, because you know I'm looking at your LinkedIn, 11 years at Oracle, baller. Seven years at Box, baller. It was 18. It was oh. just different jobs, right, oh, Mark? Oh, that's right. That's all I'm seeing now. <laughs> yeah, long time. You were at Carta. You were at Product Board. These are the type of logos that most AEs want to win. And you are the SVP in most of those logos and the buyer. How would you perceive it as a buyer? I really appreciate it. I could tell you a story about a certain CRM solution that we bought and it's not Salesforce, but it's related to the sales team. And I spent a lot of time with this one vendor, right? And I'm sure you bought stuff too, Mark, right? But you spend time with these vendors and basically all they want to do is go to contract. They want to talk about deals and they want to give you a discount because it's the end of the quarter. And I want them to understand what my time frame is, what I'm replacing and how I'm going to pay for those things. And I want them to understand from my point of view, what those things are. And I'm hearing from a rep again, and the rep's manager even, hey, we want to give you a, a swinging end of quarter deal. I'm like, are you listening to me? <laughs> I have budget that I'm trying to replace with this other solution. You need to listen about what I'm trying to do. But we've got this great deal. You send it over, that's fine. But listen, this is my time frame, and this is when it's going to happen. A bad rep is going to send me a proposal that they're going to be wedded to for the end of the next quarter when my timing comes up. And so the team would not let me have that price at the end of the next quarter when it was my time to do my deal. I got that price. They already had given it to me. But understand really the point of view of the business problem that your customer is trying to solve. In my example, I, as the SVP of sales, was trying to solve a, a problem based on a certain time frame, based on replacing another solution. They thought that they might be able to buy down my other contract. They couldn't, but they tried to use it and a discount against it to get a, a deal sooner. It didn't align with our business and didn't help us. But again, we got back to a price that they'd thrown out there because unfortunately they were sort of leaning in too early. So let's say that you get that email from that rep. I work with uh, Skip Miller. He calls it the trumpet email. And you're like, I'm trumpeting, I'm here. Here I am, you know, uh, I'm announcing myself at the ball. You know, you actually have a really fun name, Darcy. Lord Darcy Doyle is now in the deal. That's pretty good, right, Armand? Come on, man. That's, that's pretty, pretty good. good. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> All right, thank you. So you're you're doing this email. There's that critical information that you just talked about, about timeline, about discounts, about doing it like in the constraints that I have. But the rep's now not aware of those, even though they've sent this email what happens on the inside when you get that email, even though that you don't reply to it, that helps with the deal for the rep that sent the email? I mean, I think that that's, again, it's an opportunity for that person not just to talk about what their goals are as a rep or a first-line manager for someone who is trying to get me as a buyer. It's an opportunity for them to understand my business problem, my point of view to that problem, and for them to understand what they're doing. And I have to commend them for, for one thing. I did tell them, hey, I've got to understand the value of your solution and what it's going to drive me towards versus the value of this other solution that I'm using currently. And they did listen to that and they helped kind of spin the tail there. 
and get buy-in there. And then obviously as a VP of sales, I work with the finance team to make sure that my expenses that I'm signing off on are covered. So I use the CFO to help me as well. Multiple stakeholders looking for different things out of opportunity, understanding what they're after, what each one wants in an engagement and how they're going to get to it. That's what's critical. So Darcy, I want to take this in one other direction, which is I've seen you do this both at Carta and also at Product Board, where you are oftentimes brought in to help the team go up market, help the team start to close big deals. And I know you have some wild stories about closing a $50 million deal at Oracle and all of that jazz. And my question for you is you step into an organization, maybe the, the size of that org is 20 reps, give or take. What do you do when you just see a blob of 20 reps? Maybe you got some SMBs, some mid-markets, maybe there's not a real enterprise segment. How do you even start to think about taking a team enterprise? Does it start with drawing segment lines? Does it start with finding the top performers and centralizing the enterprise deals around them? Is it just wait and observe? How do you take a team up market when you're brought in to do that type of job? And if it's particularly to go up market per your question, Armand, then I think what you're doing is you're figuring out like, all right, do we have people that are already selling to large enterprise or an enterprise or whatever it is that's up market for that, for that company? Card is a different solution because obviously Card is focused on, you know, selling an equity platform for pre-IPO companies, right? For smaller companies that are that are basically raising capital. And then we created the investor group within Carta where we took basically some of the, the sellers that we looked at as being able to diagnose and work with more complex cycles. And we put them on a team that was focused on selling to VCs and building these bigger, longer-term deals that were more expensive, heavier lift, things including consulting, accounting services, all that kind of stuff. I, I think we looked at the different people and said, hey, which are the right ones to fit there? In that case, as with Product Board, like you kind of had these different teams that were starting to get ferreted out. And Product Board was, was much more about building segment lines. We, we saw the business acting differently and thought that we were doing the right things by creating those segment lines around the, what the transactions looked like and the differences in those transactions. We did that first, and then we really focused on, okay, who are the players that are right now focused on enterprise, and are they the right ones? Because there's going to be mishires, especially in a small company that's trying to move up market for the first time. You're going to have people in those seats that weren't the right people to be selling in those kinds of situations, those complex deals to the large, large companies. Just because they'd worked for a large company didn't mean that they knew how to sell to a large company, <laughs> right? And I think that those are some of the things you have to look at first to, to figure out, do you have the right people going after? And then we implemented kind of a methodology. We tried to get people to talk about value. We got people to change the way that they were talking about our solution and trying to get folks to get beyond just doing demos. And so that they could talk to business leaders within larger companies about real business pains and solutions. And some people weren't interested in, in learning and changing. They wanted to just do demos and sell. And maybe they'd be better in commercial because that's a much more transactional business. So it sounds like there were a couple different pieces when you first stepped in the product board. The first is you got to step in and you have to do a diagnostic of the people. Who's doing great? Who has potential? Who are the people that were just the mishires, right? From there, you start to identify where are the markers where the sales cycle changes. Maybe it gets bigger, maybe it gets more complex, maybe more stakeholders, maybe the product requirements are different, all of that stuff. And then you start to draw some lines. 
So you can put these different reps in different boxes and whatnot. And then from there, you start to train the team up, especially those folks who are like going and stepping up to the enterprise plate. So you can put the right people in those roles now that you have those segment lines drawn. That sounds like the process that you've taken here. I'm actually curious about the second step. When you draw those segment lines, I think I'm giving like every manager and rep in the room ulcerative colitis just by talking about segment lines because inevitably people are unhappy. I've been on the positive end of a segment line change. I've been on the negative end of a segment line change. So when you first announce the segment lines, how do you do this in a way? How do you message this to a team? If I'm in the position of the rep who might not have made enterprise, how do you draw these lines and take away these accounts in a way that you don't just make all of your reps quit because they're upset about the new way that territory lines are being drawn? You try to get people through those conversations. If your expectation was that you were going to be selling to enterprise, let's be frank. Armand, these are the things that I don't see that I need to see if you want to be in that market. And I'm going to be direct with you and I'm going to be fair. And I'm going to say, hey, but I see these things that make it feel like you could become that person in the future if that's your goal, right? And I think you work through the team and you work through those expectations. At the time that I started at Product Board, for example, we already had kind of the lines drawn. We had an enterprise team that was moving. It was just, did we have the right people? And then we changed the segment lines, added a little bit of mid-market because you know, as we wrote the sales playbooks and as the sales plays became a little more complicated as we saw them going up market and then what is it going to be like to sell to a huge retailer versus a brand new B2B SaaS company? Those things needed to change. But as taking care of the personalities and the team members, obviously, if there's people that are successful and you want to make sure that they're kept happy, you need to spend some time with them. You need to tell them where they need to work on things, right? It's, it's the same concept as managing directly and managing with passion and making sure they understand, hey, these are the things I see in you. These are the things I need to see improve. If that's what your career ambition is. How are you helping reps get those skills? Like training is one thing. I, I don't know how effective training is most of the time, but like Darcy, if you've really mastered this in an org, give me like one or two quick tips that if you were going to another big, awesome logo company to do your next thing, like what would you have to do to make sure that that transition happens? Yeah. So one of the things we started with as a premise was get beyond just doing demos. Understanding your technology is critical and you're going to have to do demos. And whether it's you doing them or somebody else, one of your technical counterparts, it doesn't matter. You're going to need to do those. The thing that I've learned, are you understanding what's on the mind of the business leaders there and why they're talking to you? What's important to them is not just the feature and the functions that you're pitching, but it's what's going on in their business, right? How do they collectively take the input of their customers to build a more effective roadmap, which was really critical. And that's basically the problem that we set out to solve. All these companies are going to have a different answer to what are you doing with your backlog? Get in the next level, understand those things. At one point when I started a product board, I asked one of the team members after getting off a call, do you know what they're trying to build there? What software they're building? And he had no clue. Right? <laughs> and that me made me say, wow, okay, that's really interesting. He, all he's doing has been pre-programmed to just talk about his solution. Does he understand the point of view of the person on the other end of the line who's trying to build a product to solve some problem for their customers? Or have you just been trained to pitch your software? Can you talk about their business and problem without talking about your solution? If you can't, you're always going to feel like you're just a demo jockey. Yep. 
critical, critical. Multi-threading is a team sport. It sales is a team sport. When we started selling Oracle financials at Oracle, we built this thing called the e-business suite. And Oracle was forced to use its own software first. So the CFO at the time, Jeff Henley, figured out how to use it and use it in sort of a shared services model. Use Oracle to close the books with this new business application. So who do you think we got on the phone with other important CFOs to talk about the business problem that they were tackling together? And do you think Jeff was looking at the screens, figuring out how to close the books on a quarterly basis? He wasn't. But he was talking about how he leveraged the greater mass and the solution in order to deliver what the business needed at the time. Mm. Darcy, we're almost at time, but we have time for one final question. And that final question of the show is as follows. We talked about a lot of good habits of sales leaders out there. We have to now talk about a bad one to break. So if there is one thing that you could get every sales leader in the world to stop doing today, what would that be? I think Armand, uh, when it comes to like the newer sales leaders of the world, I think that the thing that they're doing is they're siding with their reps before they're even looking objectively at the whole picture. Am I really looking at this whole picture from the highest level? I think that's the thing that I'd say. As much as I've talked about positivity and managing the right way, I think that's one of the traps that you fall into when you move from becoming an AE into becoming a manager, right? Because you know you were just sitting in that desk at that desk and doing that job. And now you want to move to this place where, hey, I'm going to be the manager. The reps are going to love me. And I think you have to look objectively at every one of those things and say, are we doing this the right way? Is there another way to do this better? Boom. Well, we did it better today, Darcy. Thank you for an amazing show. Everyone, hang on for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Cheers, folks. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Today's show is brought to you by Exactly Forecasting, which is a flexible sales forecasting solution that uses AI and data to help you call an accurate sales forecast. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Gong's going to help you run the five minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, Pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. All righty, Mark. What did you think? So first of all, that's the first time I've met Darcy. 
And he has this kind of like cool, smooth vibe and tone to him. But I think that one thing that he talks about a lot is just positivity. That doesn't seem to just be a a demeanor. It seems to be a philosophy for him of like, let me make people comfortable, feel safe. We're going to keep it positive and we're going to talk about all the stuff that's wrong so we can fix it together. And I think that that's an amazing approach to doing deal reviews. Yeah. Part of the thing that I learned from Darcy is I remember at the end of the quarter, he would literally be skateboarding around the office and like having a goofy time with all of his reps and he would make it really, really fun. And he would make it fun to beat up deals as a team. And that's sort of the environment that you want to create is you don't want to turn it into the Spanish Inquisition. And like he would get these other senior execs on these calls, not to beat up deals, but to figure out how they could help. And like, that's the key to nailing these deal reviews is it's everyone against the deal, not everyone against the rep. Mm. Fun is the superpower of leadership. I'm telling you, if you make stuff fun, people are all into it. And if you can make a deal review fun, then you have a special skill. <laughs> there it is. So folks, if you enjoyed what you heard about deal reviews here, well, why don't you go give Mark a follow? And somewhere on his LinkedIn, he's talked about his like deal review, pipe review framework or something like that. He does some really good stuff on pipe reviews. So go follow Mark on LinkedIn and folks, we will catch you on the next episode of 30 MPC. Peace. Today's show is brought to you by Exactly Forecasting, which is a flexible sales forecasting solution that uses AI and data to help you call an accurate sales forecast. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, Pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes.